We're just going to look at the first nine verses this morning and then continue on in the weeks to come. Uh, but the title of our time together is, is this, Just Another Miracle. And as we go through this today, I, I pray that we would see it's not just another miracle. That it's, it's quite a miraculous event that takes place here. And truly it's pointing to a greater event um, as Christ would die for the sins of the world um, to be the Savior of all who would place their faith and trust in Him. Let's pray again and just ask God's blessing on our time in the Word. And again, as I pray, I would ask you to pray that the Spirit would speak to our hearts and that we would be obedient in the places that He is leading us to follow Him. God, we are grateful again this morning to, to be able to gather. We're grateful for the work that You have done in our lives and showing us the error of our way, that we are sinners who are in need of a Savior. And God, we're thankful this morning that you didn't leave us in that place of just simply understanding we need a Savior, but you've provided the Savior through your Son's sacrifice on the cross. And God, I do pray this morning that as we come to your Word and we look at a familiar text of Jesus feeding the 4,000, that our hearts would be engaged in what's being said here, that our spirits would be truthfully overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus as he had compassion again on the people, people that were needy, a people that had no ability of their own, a people that had no hope in themselves. And Jesus looked on them with great compassion from the most inward part of his being. And God, I, I do pray today that we would understand that that's how you still look at people today. You have great compassion, and may we be thankful for that this morning. We pray that you would work in our hearts, God, as you see fit, and that we would be responsive in a way that would bring you glory, for your name truly deserves it. God, use this time for our good. Use this time for your glory. And as we leave this place today, may we again say it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If we're not careful, as we read through the Gospels, we can begin to simply look at passages like this one and say, Oh, look, it's just another miracle. In our familiarity of the Bible or with the Bible, these things don't really surprise us anymore. And if we're honest, sometimes they don't even excite us. We could sum up passages like this by just simply saying, oh, there goes Jesus doing what Jesus does. If that's the case this morning as we read the text, and in our hearts or in our minds we're saying, oh, look, Jesus is just doing what Jesus does, or we've said something to the effect of, oh, look, it's just another miracle. I pray that we would stop right now and repent of that attitude towards the Word of God because what takes place in this passage of Scripture is, is another event in the life of Christ that shows that He was not just an ordinary man, that He wasn't just a good teacher, that He wasn't just somebody who could do some really cool things, but He was God in the flesh who came to give His life for a world full of sinful people who did not deserve Him to come for them in the first place. And so may we examine our hearts today. May we examine our hearts and see what our attitude is towards Scripture. May we examine our hearts and see what our attitude is towards Christ. This passage is often criticized by liberal scholars. They would say that it's just repeated information or that the gospel writers were trying to fill more space or make Jesus look better than he already made himself look. But there are many differences in the two stories. One was done mainly for the Jews. One was done for the Gentiles. One, there was 12 baskets left over. One, there was seven baskets left over. The baskets in each story were very different baskets because of the parts of the world they were in. Uh, the the, 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 the uh, 
I lost my train of thought there, but there's differences in this story um, that prove that it's two separate accounts. It's not the gospel writers trying to fill space like we would when we were writing a report paper in school. Who's ever been there? You got your word count and you know you have to meet it and so you use words you don't even know what they mean because they fill space. That's not what the gospel writers were doing here, but they were again revealing the ability of Jesus to do what was beyond what normal humans could do. As we look to this text today, it really is connected to what went on last week. And if you think of last week, we saw the Syrophoenician woman proclaim that she believed that Jesus was able He was able to heal her daughter and she was willing to admit that though she wasn't of the right line of people, though she didn't have the right background, she knew that Jesus was big enough and great enough to do something even for her in her scenario. As Jesus continues on in this Gentile region, we see that this miracle that he performs here would have been predominantly for the Gentiles. The Jews had had their fill. They had seen what Jesus was able to do and many of them rejected him. But as Jesus goes into this Gentile area, we understand that, that, that as Jesus performed these miracles, as he taught the lessons that he would teach, as he did uh, these, these great and wonderful works, we understand that there was a, an openness in the hearts of the Gentiles where they were ready to receive the truth of who Christ was, even though they didn't fully understand or comprehend it. The big idea this morning is, is simply this. As believers, it is important that we continually remind ourselves of who Christ truly is. A steady diet of the Word of God will ensure that our hearts stay centered on seeing Christ as He is and not as we want Him to be. Have you ever had a a desire about God or Christ or the Bible that maybe was a little selfish in its ambition that, that I want God to be this way so that I can get what I want or I want Christ to be this way so that I can get what I want. Friends, we must be reminded that we don't get to determine who Christ is or what Christ does. We just have to receive him as he is. And I think when we receive him as he is and when we believe on him as he came, our hearts are going to be excited beyond our imaginations because he's way more than we could ever desire him to be in our own fleshly hearts and minds. So as we go through this account today, I would ask us to present our hearts to the Spirit of God so that he can search us and see what our attitude and desire is in continuing to know more about Christ. Have you ever met somebody who thought they knew everything? Have you ever met somebody who, who thought they truly believed they were the smartest person in the room? Can I tell you today that as believers, that's not the attitude that we should have. But we should be open and willing for God to teach us through his word, even in the most familiar of stories. And so you may be here today, a, a longtime Christian who studied the Bible, and you may be able to, to recite this story backwards and forwards. But I I pray today that in our familiarity, we would not overlook what God wants to do in us. But rather, as we look at this story again, that, that our hearts would be humbled before him and we would receive what it is that he has for us. So I want to see three things this morning in the feeding of the 4,000 that hopefully will be a help to us as we continue to grow in our relationship with Christ. The first one is this, a familiar scene. Verses 1 through 3, the Bible again says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, 
because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from afar. A familiar scene. As Christ continued through the region of Decapolis, we said this was ten uh, Greek or Gentile cities um, that, that Christ was traveling through in this time, we see that once again, the crowds begin to swell. Mark doesn't just tell us that the multitudes begin to gather, but he says the multitude was very great. It's, it's relaying to us that the, the number of people was astonishing to those who were present in that day and in that time. Later on, we understand that there were 4,000 men here, and from Matthew's reading of this very same account, we understand that that was not including the women and children. And so there was probably twelve to 15,000 people who could have possibly been present on this day. And sometimes we like to inflate those numbers to say Jesus fed 12,000 people with, with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. But isn't it amazing enough that Jesus fed even just 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish? We don't have to make the story say more than it already says, but we should allow ourselves to be enamored with the details that Mark gives us and blown away by the ability of Christ. Well, as Mark continues on, Jesus says that these people had been with him for three days and he was beginning to have compassion on them. In my Bible, I underlined that phrase, I have compassion. Because any time you see Christ say that he has compassion on the people, it's really pointing to this reality that something great is about to happen. As the disciples heard Jesus say, I have compassion on the people, something in their hearts and their minds should have been excited to understand, oh boy, we're going to get to see another working of Christ do the miraculous. We're going to get to see Christ do something that is not fathomable by human minds. And so as Christ says, I have compassion on them. And this reminds us of what we saw back in the feeding of the 5,000, that as Christ looked at these people, he understood they were as sheep having no shepherd. And do you know what Christ desired to be both for the Jews as he fed the 5,000 and for the Gentiles and Jews as he fed the 4,000? He desired to be a shepherd that would lead them. He had compassion on them. He had pity on them. He had desires for them. He, he wasn't enamored with this idea of a great crowd gathering to see him. But as the crowd grew, so did his compassion. He didn't begin to get full of himself in this moment when he saw 4,000 men coming to him in this moment. But rather, his compassion began to grow as he saw their great need. And let us be reminded today that their greatest need was not physical, but spiritual. And as Christ was getting ready to perform this great miracle, he was indeed relaying to them once again that he was the bread of life that could satisfy not just their physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well. And friend, if you're here today without Christ, understand that he is a compassionate Savior who loves you. And while he can meet every one of your physical needs, understand this, it is of greater value when he meets our spiritual needs. And so Christ has compassion on these people. This wasn't the first time Christ had had compassion. And we said last time that when this word compassion is used of Christ, it's not just a feeling of sympathy or empathy, but it's a compassion that flows from the bowels, from the inside, from the deepest parts of who he is. And so his heart was groaning for them. 
His heart was burdened for them. His heart was, was heavy or weighed down by the needs that they have. And so Jesus says, I have compassion on them because they've now been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. And Christ understood that by meeting their physical need by way of the bread that their stomachs were longing for, their hearts and minds would then be open to this reality of him meeting the spiritual needs that they had. Church, are you thankful today that Christ has had compassion on you? Are you thankful that that after you've received the initial compassion of Christ, that he still chooses to lead you as a compassionate shepherd day in and day out? And as I read this text this week, my mind went directly to Psalm 23. And as we think about this idea of the Lord being our shepherd, we understand that he is a good shepherd and a compassionate shepherd and a kind and gentle shepherd, a faithful and caring shepherd, a knowledgeable and a capable shepherd. And he's able to give us everything we need. And that's why the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And as Christ saw these people wandering again as sheep without a shepherd, his desire in this moment was to show compassion on them so that they would understand that he was the only shepherd worth following. And friend, I would submit to us today that Christ is still the only shepherd worth following. He's the only one who truly desires to care for our needs with getting nothing in return. He's the one who has gentle, compassionate thoughts towards us. He is faithful. He knows us inside and out. And he can meet every single one of our needs. And as Christ looked on the multitudes on this day, he looked at his disciples and said, I have compassion on the multitude." He goes on in verse number three and says, if I send them away at this point, fasting to their own houses or not eating, and they have to travel all the way to their own houses, they're going to faint by the wayside for divers of them. This wasn't meaning that some dived to get to Jesus under the water, but it means many of them came from a great distance. Jesus was recognizing things about these people that he didn't see in his own people. They were committed to him on some level. And maybe for some, it was just to have their bellies filled, hoping that Jesus would do another miracle. But for some, they were intrigued by the ability of Christ and the way that Christ spoke, that he spoke with with an authority unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, that he taught them with love and, and not a desire to get something for themselves. And so while this scene is familiar, let us not get lost in its familiarity. But let us understand that as Christ was compassionate on these people, Christ is still compassionate for us. I wonder today, how many times have we been through situations that are common, and instead of running to the Savior and clinging to the Savior, we try to figure it out on our own. Instead of running to the shepherd who is faithful to walk with us through every storm of life. So the first thing we see is a familiar scene. 
The second thing we see this morning is the forgetful disciples. In verse number four, after Jesus had told the the disciples that he had compassion on the multitude, and as he gave them a reason why he had compassion on the multitude, the Bible goes on to say this, Mark records for us that his disciples answered him from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Again, we can kind of see the the attitude of the disciples coming out in the way that things are written. And Jesus says, hey guys, I have compassion on the people. They're hungry. There's a lot of people. They've been traveling with us for a long time, three days without anything to eat. And Jesus tells the disciples this, and the disciples fire back and say what? Well, how can we, how can any man satisfy this great need? Jesus, we're all the way out in the wilderness. And as we think through the disciples' response, It seems once again that they were forgetful of who they were talking to in this moment. They were forgetful of the one who had broken the little boy's lunch up after he had blessed it and looked to heaven and then fed the multitudes of 5,000 people plus women and children. They were forgetful of the one who met them in their time of need on more than one occasion when they found themselves in a difficult spot in the storms on the sea. They were forgetful of how Jesus had just healed the man who was mute or or, or had a speech impediment and and was deaf. They were forgetful of how Jesus had just uh, rid this little girl in Mark chapter 7 of the demon that had possessed her. And so when Jesus comes and, and he, with consistency, shows his compassion towards the people, we see that the disciples also, with great consistency, failed to understand and recognize the greatness of the one who was standing before them on this day. The disciples were nearsighted, meaning they couldn't see the full picture because they were focused on themselves and the limitations that they had. I think if the lady from last week, the woman, the Syrophoenician woman was there on this day and Jesus came and said, we've got all these people and we need to feed them. And this woman, if she was there on that day, she would have said, yes, Jesus, and you're the only one who can do this miracle. She wouldn't have said, how can any man satisfy these people when they were in the wilderness? But she would have looked to the only one who could have satisfied this need as they found themselves in the wilderness. And so often in our lives, as we go through event after event after event, we begin to become forgetful over the things that God has done in the past. And when we fail to remember what God has done in the past, we have no hope for the future. So the disciples looked at this situation and they were a little disgruntled. Jesus, why why are you asking us this question? You know that we don't have enough food to feed these people. You know that we're in the middle of the wilderness. And so you posing this problem and telling us that you want to help these people when we don't have the resources is useless. And I love what they say say in in this passage. How can a man satisfy these men with bread? And it just goes again to show that the disciples at this point were not fully understanding that Jesus was more than a man. Certainly Jesus had taken time to reveal to them the truth of who he was. Certainly even in accounts that we don't have written for us, there were conversations that Jesus had with the disciples that would reveal to them his greatness and his ability and his miraculous power as he came to this earth to be God in the flesh. And yet we see the disciples becoming forgetful once again over all the things that God has done. I've admitted to you before that 
I am often a forgetful person. Um, I can't, can't go, to the, go to the grocery store without the list, and I can't even use paper lists anymore because I'm going to forget that somewhere. And so I get a texted list to me. Why? Because I'm a forgetful person. And as true as that is in going to the grocery store, can we all also admit that there are times in our lives where we are forgetful towards the goodness of God in our lives? That we're not here today because of who we are. We're here today because of his faithfulness to us. We haven't persevered through storms and trials because we've pulled ourselves up through our, by our own bootstraps or, or we've had ideas that solved problems. But we're here today because of the faithful, compassionate Savior who has walked with us through the valley of the shadow of death. We're here today because He has led us beside those still waters and into those green pastures. And the disciples had their needs met time and time again. And they saw those around them have their needs met time and time again. And in this moment when Jesus says, Hey, I want to help these people, the disciples are quick to say, But it's not even possible, Jesus. We don't have the resources, we don't have the ability. And all the while, they were forgetting the very one that they were speaking to in this moment. So we must be careful to not be like the disciples in becoming forgetful. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. I was reminded this week of what Deuteronomy, I think it's 33, I can't remember the verse right now, but it promises that we're going to have strength for every day. As, as great as your days are, so will your strength be. And what is that? It's a blessing of God on our lives. I'm reminded of what Lamentations 3 says, that His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness, even in spite of my unfaithfulness. And so as Jesus was looking at the disciples here and says, I have compassion on these people, I imagine Him almost groaning as He did last week when he prayed over this, this, uh, the, the, the man who had the speech impediment and couldn't hear. I imagine his groan as we see in other places in the Bible as he had compassion on these people and yet the disciples still failed to see the reality of the one who was standing before them in this moment. What they needed to do is go back to Psalm 23 and, that remember, and remember this truth that because the Lord is their shepherd, they shall not want. To remember the, the reality that Jesus, the promised Messiah, who was promised long before their time, that he was able to do exceeding abundantly above all that they could ask or think. And yet the disciples found themselves being forgetful. And when they became forgetful, they also began to be hopeless. How has God been good to you? you make it a practice of reminding yourself of his goodness? I I enjoyed what Dave said uh, last Sunday night as he preached in the field about prioritizing our prayer time. And I liked the uh, model he gave of of praying through the ABCs. And and in my life, I, I think it would be best for me to pray through the ABCs just with an attitude of gratitude. 
that through every letter of the alphabet, I'm going to go through and say, God, I'm thankful for this, and I'm thankful for that, from A to Z, and just remind myself of the benefits that God daily loads my life with. As we say often here, that, that I'm not who I am because of me, I'm who I am because of Him. And the only reason I get to stand there here today and preach the Word of God is because He's allowed me once again to wake up and have breath in my lungs. It's because His mercies are great. It's because He crowns us with loving kindness. So as the disciples found themselves in this scenario, and as Jesus comes to them with with a perceived problem that He wanted to help these people, the disciples were quick to say, well, well, we, we don't have the means, Jesus. We're just going to have to send them away. So a familiar scene, the forgetful disciples, and then finally this morning, a faithful Savior. Verses 5 through 9, the the story continues. When Jesus hears the disciples say that we don't have the resources to complete the task that you want to complete, and we don't have the ability in ourselves to feed this multitude of people, Jesus looks at the disciples and he, he asks them a question. How many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have, gentlemen? How much do you have that you're willing to give to the one who can do way more with those things than you ever could. How many loaves have you saved for yourself instead of being willing to offer those up for me to do a great miracle with? Wasn't it the disciples who went around from person to person in the feeding of the 5,000 and tried to scrounge up as much as they could? And what did they find? Well, they found five loaves and two fish. And Jesus was able to do a great miracle there. Yet in the disciples' own resources, they had seven loaves of bread that they didn't even think about offering up to Jesus to see what he could do with them. They just simply said that they didn't have enough. So Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? And they said, we have seven. And then Jesus doesn't even bother with the disciples from this point on. He just tells them in verse 6 to command, uh, and he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples and set before them. And they did eat, uh, and they did set them before the people. And verse 7, and they had a few small fishes. And he blessed them and commanded to set them before them. And so Jesus sees the need. He understands the limited foresight or understanding that the disciples had in their lives. And so he digs a little deeper into their lives and says, well, what do you have to offer me? And when they say seven, Jesus does what Jesus does. And he takes the bread and he always give thanks to the Father for what is provided for them in this moment. And then Jesus begins to break that up and give it to the disciples so that they could distribute the good provision of God to those who were present on that day. So they take the bread, they take the fish, and the Bible says in verse number 8, so they did eat and were filled. Now what was the... Disciples question just a few moments ago. Who can satisfy this need? Jesus can. Who can satisfy the need of the multitude in this moment when we have very limited, limited resources to be able to do what Jesus wants to do? Jesus can meet those needs. And while there was a question in the minds of the disciples of how these people would be satisfied, Jesus already understood in his heart and mind that he alone was able to satisfy. 
And so they pass out the bread and they pass out the fish. And the Bible says that they did eat and, and they ate until they were full. And then the disciples went around and they gathered up all the broken meat, all the leftover bits and crumbs and pieces. And the Bible says that they brought back seven baskets full. Well, you say this, this wasn't as big of a miracle as we saw in Mark 6. That they had 12 baskets full then. Well, this is where it's a little interesting. This is, again, how we know it's a different account because the baskets that were used in, in Mark 6, they were Jewish baskets. They were smaller baskets. But the baskets that were spoken of in Mark 8 were Greek baskets or Gentile baskets, and they would have been the size of a hamper. It's the same Greek word that's used when Saul was let down over the wall at night to escape his enemies. What type of basket was it? Well, it was this type of basket. And so they had seven man-sized baskets that were full of leftovers in this moment. And, And what's the big deal about the number seven? Well, if you're into numerology, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. And so as we said last time, there were 12 baskets left over. Why? For the 12 doubting disciples. And this time there were seven baskets left over. Why? To show the completeness of God's work, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That he was a big enough savior to provide for the needs, not just of one group of people, but of every people group. That he could rescue and redeem to himself people from every walk of life. And I'm sure the Gentiles were excited on this day that Jesus didn't just go from Jew to Jew and say, here's a little bit of bread and fish for you, here's a little bit of bread and fish for you. But they were included in this account as people who didn't belong to the heritage of God's people and yet God still provided for their needs. And this ties directly in what we saw last week where the lady with the daughter who had the demon said, But don't the dogs even get the crumbs that fall from the table? And in this scenario, Jesus said, you're right, and I'm going to feed you with more than crumbs that fall to the floor. I'm going to give you more than the leftovers. I'm going to give you of abundance the things that I have provided. So Jesus does another miracle. And this again shows the faithfulness of the Savior in spite of the doubting disciples. You think Jesus ever got a little frustrated with the disciples? I don't, it wasn't frustration in a sinful way. And he knew their hearts and minds, so maybe he wasn't surprised at all. Maybe every one of these scenarios, he, he said what he said just to prove how foolish they were, right? Maybe, maybe Jesus was making a point for us to receive down the road. But these men who walked with Jesus in the end for three and a half years still at the end, didn't understand. In a few weeks, we're going to see in one moment that Peter is saying what? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, I'm going to the the cross. And what does Peter say? Not so, Lord. And then what does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Again, revealing that the disciples didn't understand the goodness of, and the reality of who Jesus was in this moment and what he came to do. So Jesus does the miracle. He breaks the bread and the fish. He satisfies the people. And this is just, again, a reminder of this reality that true satisfaction only comes from Christ. As I said a moment ago, if we're not careful, we can look at this and say, it's just another miracle. 
It's just, again, Jesus doing what Jesus does. How many of you ever have gotten in a rut of what you eat for maybe lunch or dinner? Anybody? You have the same thing over and over again. You guys aren't being honest. I know how it is. Same thing over and over again. If Nate was here still, he had the same sandwich every single day. It was, I don't remember what it was, like salami and turkey and cheese, and he took two, two oranges and a banana every day. It's like, Nate, you've got you to gotta step out of that routine. Try, try something a little different. But sometimes when you eat the same thing over and over again, you get in this rut, and the thing that you once loved becomes something that you actually begin to despise. That happened to me, and, and some of you know this, with lasagna. Um, Recently, Gina and Kelly had us over for, for dinner, and they made, Gina made lasagna. And uh, I, I don't tell people, well, now I'm telling everybody. <laughs> but I, I really don't like lasagna, and there's a reason for it. And so Gina was walking through the back and saw the, our kids, and she said, is there anything you guys don't like? I'm making lasagna. And Noah pipes up and says, my dad hates lasagna. <laughs> um, which is always just such an encouraging thing when somebody's invited you over for dinner. And uh, we've had a conversation since then. You don't need to tell everything about me. I do a good enough job of that on my own. But there's a reason I don't like lasagna. For, the, for my freshman year in college, I went to a very small Bible college, and uh, they, would, they would take frozen lasagna every Sunday, and they would heat it up, and that's what we ate every Sunday for the whole school year. And so when I left college, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm never eating lasagna again. And... To Gina's defense, her lasagna is very good, but I still hate lasagna. (laughs) And understand this, that that sometimes we can experience and see the same things over and over again, that we begin to have a, a, a distaste for them, or we begin to not appreciate them like we once did. And you understand today that we can never allow ourselves to get that way with the Word of God and the goodness of God. I know Mark chapter 8. I know the the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I know it's familiar to many of us in this room. But though we know the story, I think the question that we really need to ask is this, do we know the Savior of the story? Do we recognize his daily compassion in our lives? Do we recognize his his faithful goodness? And so what does the psalmist say about this idea of of growing in our desire and our understanding and being satisfied with the goodness of God? In Psalm 34, 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And while for me I've grown to dislike lasagna, may it never be the case that I grow to dislike hearing about Christ and all the good things that he's done, not just in my life, but in your life, that together we can rejoice in the faithfulness of our Savior to come through time and time again. I've heard my brother say more times this week than I've ever heard him say before, God is good, and guess what? I hope he keeps on saying it. Why? Because God is good. And when a car drives through your house, guess what? God is good. When a loved one gets sick with a disease that's incurable, guess what? God is good. And when you lose a job or you have relational struggles or you just get into a place in your life where you're defeated and discouraged and depressed, understand this, taste again and what will you see? That God is good. 
And so the disciples were having another lesson as we journey through Mark's gospel of seeing the faithfulness of the Savior one more time. And friend, I don't know what you're experiencing today in your life, but I pray that you'll understand this, that God is faithful and God is good. You may be the disciples right now and and you have a need in your life and it's like, how can anybody do this? How can anybody fix this problem? How can anybody heal or mend what's broken? How can anybody put these pieces back together? I don't have the resources. I don't have the ability. And may we be reminded in those moments, though we don't, he does. And so often he does come through in our times of need, more than we even comprehend or understand. So in this moment when the disciples were faced with a familiar situation, they doubted. When Jesus came and posed the question to them, how are we going to feed these people? They pushed it off like it almost wasn't their responsibility because they didn't have the resources. And yet here again we see that the faithful Savior comes through And though he does what he does, may we never get bored with this reality that he does what he does. May every day we look to see the faithfulness of our Savior as he pours his goodness in our lives. We like to, again, give the disciples a hard time. But more often than not, we're the disciples. More often than not, we begin to doubt what God is going to do rather than going to him in prayer with expectancy, knowing that he can do what needs to be done. And even sometimes when we see God do a miracle, the reality is we are quick to explain it away because miracles make us a little uncomfortable. As The car drove through my brother's house. He was on the couch. His oldest daughter and his wife were in recliners across the room. And their two younger daughters were upstairs sleeping on the wall of the house that the car came through. He woke up in that moment terrified, petrified, screaming. Because their lives were in chaos. From from going from a peaceful evening at home as a family to having a car in your living room, complete chaos. One of their first thoughts was, we need to get the girls from upstairs. And so he rushed up what little of a staircase there was and grabbed the girls and brought them back down. And the next day, we were at the house looking at the stairway and looking at the landing at the top of the stairs. And there is no physical way that he could reach his girls. No physical way. He tried. We we can see he was bleeding from his head. We can see where the blood stopped. There was no physical way he could reach his girls. But do you know where each one of those girls ended up? In the arms of their dad. And we could say, well, well, maybe things shifted more after they left the house. Or maybe, maybe this or maybe that. Friend, why not just believe that our God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think and in our moments of need. His heart of compassion is for us. 
That he desires to lead us as a good shepherd who is kind and compassionate and gentle and merciful and loving and kind. And he will do things in our lives in those moments that are unexplicable. And what should be our only priority in those moments when he does those things? To God be the glory, great things he has done. He's a good Savior. We have a good God. And as Jesus once again was showing the disciples and those around the reality of who he was, they missed it. But friends, today, let us not miss it. But let us see the truth of our Savior and let us rejoice in his kindness towards us. As Christ again filled this need, it's just another gentle reminder to us that though he fills physical needs, the greatest need he fills is salvation. That through himself, through the gift that he gave as he died on the cross for our sins, he has done more for us than we could ever do for ourselves in making a way for us to be rescued and redeemed. And there are many people in this room today who would raise their hand and say, yes, I have trusted Christ as my Savior. I know that there was no hope in myself, but I look to Christ And he came through for me and gave me hope in this life and in the life to come. And let us never stop praising God for that salvation that he has provided for us. But friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand he's still a compassionate Savior. And he's still saving those who will come to him by faith. And so I would ask you this question, is Christ your Savior? You say, I don't think I need a Savior. I think I can figure it out on my own. Just as the, as the disciples said here, how can any man satisfy these needs in the wilderness? The reality is you and I cannot satisfy our spiritual needs either. And so we need one to step in, and Christ is that one. He came and came to this world in in sinless perfection. He lived a sinless life and he died on the cross as one who had never committed one ounce of sin, but he died for those who had. And guess who those people are, friends? It's you and I. We're the sinners that he died for. The Bible says that if we would believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Christ will indeed be our Savior, Not just in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing, if you have questions about how Christ can be your Savior today, to save you from your greatest need, which is your sinfulness, I'm going to be at the back. And I would encourage you to come see me there. And together, we can go through the Word of God and show you how you can be saved. But if you're here today and you are a believer, I would just leave you with this one question. Are you trusting Christ perpetually in the place that he has you right here and right now? I'm a firm believer that we are not where we are in this life because of mistakes. We are where we are because God has a plan. Will you trust him in this moment? Where life is just monotonous. Anybody ever been there? And you feel like you have no purpose. Will you look to Christ to give you that purpose, to give you that hope, so that you can press on from day to day? And so it's not just another miracle, 
but it's another opportunity to see the goodness of our Savior as he was displaying to the world this reality that he truly was God in the flesh. God, we ask this morning that as we wrap up this portion of our service, that you would help us to understand what was written in your word, understand what was preached. God, may your spirit give great clarity even in places where where I have failed and come short. God, I do pray if there's any here who have never trusted Christ that today would be the day of their salvation. And God, for those who are saved, I pray that today they would commit again to trusting you through whatever they face in the here and now, knowing that you have a secure home for them waiting when this life is over. God, help us today. Help us to love you and serve you and trust you with a greater fervency than ever before. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we sing this song to wrap up this part of our service, if you haven't grabbed a communion cup, certainly you can go do that. If you have questions about salvation, like I said, I'll be in the back. If you're a believer, I would just simply ask you to to think through your own heart and life. Examine your heart before we take the Lord's Supper to make sure that that we have repented of the sinfulness that we so often give ourselves to and that we would commit ourselves to trusting Him whatever comes our way. Sing, turn your eyes.